everyone, this is Joshua Ward and I am here at Lakeland Community Church. This morning we are going to be talking to people about a very strange Bible verse. So, Mark 11, verse 12 through 16. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say, When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Why do you think Jesus killed the fig tree? It seems to me that he was just having a pretty bad day and he wanted a fig and I really don't know, I really don't know why Jesus killed the fig tree. Um, why do you think Jesus killed the fig tree? Um, he's probably trying to show the power, maybe a little more. You know, it's funny because I always thought that was kind of a harsh uh, treatment for the tree not having any fruit because I always thought, well, dude, give it some time, it's out of season. Um, well, I think pretty clearly he was upset about the fig tree not offering the fruit, and fig trees are a symbol of ancient Israel. So anyone that was uh, one of God's chosen people, not very Um, Because it was unproductive and it wasn't bearing fruit. That is my response. <laughs> Bad morning, no coffee, I mean, I don't know. It, it was morning, right? Um, maybe because it was being accepted, but I didn't like think that thing was going to happen for something. You're a fig? Those things are nasty. Fig Putin's? I don't know why people buy those things. Right. Oh, I can't. It's not like You know what I'm trying to record. Oh, you're recording? We're trying. How's it going? Good. What do you think about Jesus cursing a tree? <laughs> <laughs> I don't do anything. What does this tell you about God? What does that tell you about God? He's spontaneous, for one. Uh, doesn't play by the rules. He, he does whatever he wants. If he wants a fig, you better be fruit bearing. And I think that God wants us, God requires us to serve him. He, he doesn't ask that much in return, but what he does ask in return is salt and set. I think that's it. I think this tells us that even with his we still have to respond. What do you think this tells us about God? I don't want to be in this video. Too late, you're in the video. This is a wacky passage of scripture. This comes from Mark chapter 11, 
It is all one passage, and yet it just runs on from one topic to the next without ever using the clutch. And it is confusing. And the most disturbing part of the passage is that Jesus himself seems a little off his rocker. We're not supposed to say that about Jesus, but he goes up to a fig tree and he's hungry and there's no figs. So he says, may you never grow figs again. He curses a little tree. I mean, we kind of walk away from the passage saying, what'd that poor little tree do? (laughs) To exact divine judgment on a little fruit tree? What a waste of divine energy. I mean, if we can do miracles, why don't we make it where it could grow some figs instead of killing it? We have all these frames hung up because the, um, you know, the arts team is getting us in that Jesus comes to bring a new picture of God. He fills in these empty frames, a new picture of God for us. Okay, what's the fig tree show us? There's more to this passage than just the weird structure and topics. Uh, Jesus, after he kills the fig tree, he goes in the temple where they're buying and selling things in the courts, and he calls it a den of thieves. What are we supposed to learn from that? Are we not supposed to be buying and selling stuff in church? We have a coffee bar, so if Jesus came here, would he grab the barista machine and throw it on the floor? A couple weeks ago, I was standing out in the lobby. This little girl came up and asked me if I wanted to buy some Girl Scout cookies. And then this other toddler came up and he was selling cookie dough and I bought it. But I guess like if I was a real pastor, I would swat it out of his hand like cave of robbers. (laughs) And then Jesus just bounces right on from that to say, you know, if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain. You can cause a mountain to throw itself into the sea if you just believe it. Now that's, that actually gets a little tougher because you know, a lot of you are in a bad situation. Some are sick. Some are up against some terrible circumstances and you'd love uh, nothing more than believe if you just have faith, whatever you pray for, God would, would give you that. But I, I read later in the scripture, the apostle Paul say he had some sort of thing. He called it a thorn in his flesh that he prayed three times that God would remove and God didn't remove it. So however much faith it takes, I guess it's gotta be more than the apostle Paul. I don't have that much. I actually know of a, 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 a acquaintance of mine, his sister was clinging to this verse during her husband's cancer treatment. That whatever you ask for, if you have enough faith, it will be yours. And so all during his treatment, she had faith that he would be healed all the way up until he died. But she was sure that what Jesus said he, he would mean. And so even during his funeral, she prayed that he would be raised from the dead right out of his casket. All the way up until they buried him. And, and true story, she spent three nights on his grave fasting and praying in faith that God would answer her prayer and raise him from the dead. Her family finally had to have her committed to care for about a year. I don't have as much faith as that lady and she didn't get what she wanted. What's that all about? And then without any explanation, Jesus says, and by the way, when you pray, uh, forgive those you hold a grudge against so that God can forgive you. That may be the scariest of all because we all know what happens to you if God hasn't forgiven you of your sin. And yet some of us have had horrible things done to us. We've tried to forgive. We even thought we did forgive and then later on realized, no, we still hate him. 
So, like, if we can't get that figured out, then we're going to hell, I guess. Jesus came to give us a new picture of God, and, and, and this is the picture. Clearly, the religious leaders of that day didn't agree because they, in this same verses, they pull off to the side and, and hatch a plot to have Jesus crucified, to deliver him into the hands of the Romans, kind of do some dirty tricks to get him crucified. You know, though, that's actually a first clue that something else is going on here. Because if he was just a crazy person saying crazy stuff, they wouldn't have to hatch some big secret plot. Mostly they could just ignore him if he was just a crazy person saying crazy stuff. And they certainly wouldn't need to have a fake trial and pull shenanigans to get the Romans to crucify him if he was just a... He must have been saying something that made more sense to them than it makes to us. And something that actually threatened their power in order for them to pull off to the side and hatch a plot, which we'll see as Holy Week continues to unfold. So what if God's word is not as a confusing mess here in Mark chapter 11 as it seemed when we first looked at it? What if Mark, the writer, knows exactly what he's doing when he takes this story of a fig tree and wraps it around the story of Jesus in the temple? Because he only does this three times in Mark. He starts a story, then tells you something else, then goes back to the first story. Intentionally wrapping it around the fig tree story wrapped around the story of the temple. What if he did that because one is necessary to interpret the other? Jesus wants figs, but it says right there in the passage, it wasn't the season for figs. So he knows as he's walking up to the tree, he's not going to get any, but yet condemns the tree. So what if this story must not be about figs? What if it's Jesus is doing something that Old Testament prophets did all the time, which is act out a parable. You know, in the Old Testament, sometimes a guy would strip down naked and throw ashes on himself and run around the city and say, you know, this is how you appear before the Lord or how you should. You know, everybody's like, woo. Um, or they'd put on a big ox yoke and, you know, this is the burden that is born. Or one guy married a prostitute so God could say, like, this is what it's like to be married to you people. And that was pretty extreme. But they did that stuff. Old Testament prophets would act out a parable. What if Jesus with the fig tree is acting out a parable? And so what we're supposed to see here is something about something that doesn't produce fruit and so it's condemned. So we're just gonna hold that theory and read the rest of the passage and see if that adds up. Because the next place Jesus goes is into the temple. The temple had all sorts of, of courts. Like there's a center place where only the high priest could go and only once a year. And then there was a court where the priest could go all the time. And then there was a court where any Jewish man could go. And then there was a court for Jewish women. They could get that close. But then there was an outer court called the court of the Gentiles. And that was for anyone, foreigner, that's what they called people that weren't Jewish Gentiles, any foreigner. And they could come and worship God out there if they wanted to bring worship to the God of Israel. Except that during the Passover, they would fill that outer court up with kind of a market to sell all the animals for the sacrifices they're gonna do, cows, goats, doves, or, or, or sheep. And so 
And they had these money changing tables because people would come home to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire and they'd have coins from everywhere and they could switch out their coins for temple coins. So they had all these money changing tables. All this going on in this outer court of the Gentiles. So you could no more pray in that outer court than you could pray in a stockyard during an auction. But who cares? It's just the court of the Gentiles. It's just for foreigners anyway. And it's the Passover. It's a, it's a Jewish thing. Jesus walks into that court of the Gentiles and sees all that, starts flipping the tables over. John says he makes a whip and whips the animals out. And he says, my father's house will be a house of prayer. And a long time when I read that, I thought, oh, okay. So church, I guess places of worship ought to be quiet. Like there ought to not be a bunch of hustle and bustle going on. Jesus is really uptight about that. And you ought not be buying and selling stuff. It ought to be, I guess, just a bunch of praying all the time. It's because I did not realize what they would have realized immediately. Jesus just quoted to them an Old Testament prophet. When Jesus said, my father's house would be a house of prayer, he was quoting them Isaiah 56, 7. Let me read you a couple of verses out of Isaiah 56. I'll read you verses 6 and 7. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. All of chapter 56 is how God is going to use people of Israel to reveal himself to the world and that the temple in Jerusalem is not to be a national monument it's to be a place where people from all nations could come but by Jesus day that's not what the temple is at all they hate foreigners they would prefer that they never come they fill up their outer court with a marketplace and money changing tables then Jesus goes on to say but you have turned it into a den of thieves Um, Another passage calls it a cave of robbers. And I read that and I used to think, oh, they must be cheating people in there with the money changing. Or Jesus is a communist. He thinks anytime you sell something, it's thievery. Or I don't know, he's really uptight about that. Again, because I did not realize Jesus is quoting an Old Testament prophet. When Jesus said that, he was quoting them, Jeremiah chapter seven. Let me read you a few verses from Jeremiah chapter seven. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again? Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves. This passage in Jeremiah, it's about all the ways the people of Israel are turning away from God, but then thinking, but God won't dare punish us because we've got his temple. This is like where his house is. It's not that that there's thievery happening inside the temple. In fact, thieves don't thieve in their own den They thieve other places and they run back to their den to hide. And the temple, Jeremiah says, you're treating it like a hideout. 
The crimes they commit are out there in the world. They oppress the poor, it says in Jeremiah. They uh, oppress foreigners. They worship other gods. Then they run back to their hideout in the temple and say, God, you wouldn't destroy your own temple, would you? They're like uh, kids playing tag with a grown-up. Have you ever played tag with a kid? You, you chase them and they run around about as long as they can stand it. And then right before you catch them, they find any random solid object and go, base. But what does a grown-up always say to a kid who does that? There's no base. There's no base when you play tag with a grown-up. The Israelites are running from God, doing anything and everything they want. Then they run back into their temple and say, base. And God says, in Jeremiah, there's no base. There's no base. And God tells Jeremiah, I can come into that den of thieves and pull them out. In fact, what will Jesus say about this temple himself the day following the passage we're reading? We studied it three weeks ago. He said, I tell you the truth, not one stone of this temple will be standing on top of the other. And to this day, in Jerusalem, there is no temple. Now, after Jesus says that, then Mark completes the picture by going back to the fig tree. Verse 20. The next morning, they passed by the fig tree he had cursed. The disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Do you get the message? The fig tree produced no fruit. Jesus curses it. The temple produces no fruit. Jesus curses it. The fig tree dies. The temple is next. 37 years after this passage is written, the Romans come and they surround the city and they tear the temple to the ground. It has never been rebuilt. If you have a Bible that has chapter headings, little titles, those aren't original to the scripture. Those are put in later. And, and one that bothers me a bit is sometimes this will be called the, the, the cleansing of the temple. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is condemning the temple. Jesus is hanging a closed sign on the temple. This is no longer a picture of God that really looks much like God at all. In this act, Jesus says, it's over for the temple. But a new picture of God is coming. One failed house of prayer is about to fall, but a new one's gonna rise. In fact, listen on Good Friday if you're here in the Good Friday service and hear how many times during Jesus' trial and things, there'll be references made to, he said he could destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And all the things Jesus said about the temple and about his own body and about his resurrection, all tightly connected a new picture of God is coming in Jesus because the way they have been using the temple, it's failed to look very much like God. They don't want foreigners there. They think it frees them from having to follow God. 
So that's, that's going to be the end of the temple. Then Mark gives us just a couple of quick verses to begin to paint in a new picture of God. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything if you believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And yet we know from the rest of the Bible and all of Christian history, no one has ever gotten a mountain to go and throw itself in the ocean. So what is going on with this verse? Let me give you an example. A, a staff member last year did some great ministry, made some great decisions and changes here in the church. And uh, so they came to me, we were back here in the back of the sanctuary, and they were asking for a little more uh, money to hatch a new plan and for some leeway to make some risky decisions to make some changes. And I said to that staff member, right now, after all you've done, if you asked me to cut off my right hand and give it to you, I would do it. No, I didn't mean that. What I meant was, after all the good you have done, I want to give you whatever resources, money, leeway, to, to do more, to do more ministry. I am fiercely devoted. Whatever it is you say you need, I want you to have it. Whatever you thought in this exchange, I want you to know I want you to have it. I would cut off my right hand and give it to you. When I was a kid, uh, we had a time when our budget was tight and karate lessons were, you know, questionable. And, but my dad said to me, I would sell pencils in the street for you to have those karate lessons. No, I didn't think he really meant he would sell pencils in the street, but he was saying, I am devoted to you having that. Whatever else seems at risk here, take that off the table. This is how we talk to one another. This is how we talk to one another to express our fierce devotion. And, and this is what Jesus means when he says, because they've had this picture of a temple where you have to go buy off God. Jesus is saying, forget that. I, I'm at, if you want this mountain to throw itself in the sea, he'll do that for you. Just have faith and believe. He is that devoted. He wants to answer your prayers. Now I can tell you from experience, not all our prayers will be answered in just the way you thought. But they all receive something because he is so eager to answer our prayers. That's the picture we're supposed to see, a God who's eager to respond to us. That's a new picture compared to what they've been walking around in those temple courts seeing. And then he says this. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you hold a grudge against so your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. That one's a little more sober. But this is where we realize that we also are part of the new picture of God. We have a role to play too. For one, when you forgive someone else, you show the power of God. If you've ever been forgiven by somebody, it's really not hard to imagine that God must have been behind it somewhere. Another thing is it shows that we ourselves understand the high cost of forgiveness. Because it's hard. But it is a strange behavior to ask God to forgive us and then be unwilling to forgive anyone else. That kind of looks like we don't really understand the high cost of what we were given. But understanding that it is hard. On Good Friday, Jesus gives us an example. 
for those of us who are just too hurt to forgive, too weakened by our pain to forgive, just too angry. On Good Friday, he gives us this example of the high price he was willing to pay. If we really sit and we consider that Good Friday story, the trial and the torture and the cross, sometimes it makes us think, maybe I could try again to forgive. If, if God forgive me that, forgave me that way, maybe I could try again. So as you come to the Good Friday service this week, go ahead and bring in your heart those people you have a grudge against, that you've had trouble forgiving, and kind of hold them there as you hear Jesus' story and see if what happened to him doesn't give you just enough to try, try again. But that's a new picture of God. And Jesus or uh, other places in the New Testament that are gonna say that each of our bodies is gonna become a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we, the church, become now this new picture of God to the world. So this is the season of Lent, and we're all supposed to look inward and, and examine ourselves. And we, some of us are carrying around these cards in our pocket, and whenever something in Lent reminds us to pray, we pull them out and pray. You can get these on the table as you leave. But the, the card this week says, Lord, show me how I have made the church into a picture which looks nothing like you. May we be ambassadors of your love. So now we come together as a church family and we try to make our church part of the new picture of God that Jesus is bringing, God's grace, a place where when you see this church, you see the grace of God. We are part of that new picture when we minister to all nations. We don't have our outer court, whatever that would be, filled up with animals and money-changing tables. We don't think God loves American Christians more than he loves Mexicans or more than he loves the Chinese or more than he loves Arabs. We know he wants a house of prayer for all nations. We are part of the new picture of God when we pray bravely for things that seem impossible today. I think our ushers have done a great job in the, in the last many years of being part of the new picture of God because um, they don't stand out there like wardrobe police, you know, giving people the hairy eyeball because they don't have the Christian look, whatever that would be, I don't, I don't know. But uh, I hear again and again, our ushers look people in the eye and they welcome them in the name of Jesus. That's the new picture standing right out there on the sidewalk when our church is known by who we love and not by who we hate or who we disagree with. When we preach, we don't preach a temple with closed walls, but we preach Christ with the curtain torn wide open for all to come. We're part of the new picture of God when we realize that in our daily lives and especially in our businesses, we can't go out and take advantage of people. And we can't make big money off people's pain and then retreat back here every Sunday and cry, base. There's no base from God and his justice. We have to express it everywhere we go. And we become a new picture of God when we ask hard questions of ourselves as a church. We have to ask ourselves hard questions during Lent and all the rest of the year too. We have to ask ourselves questions like, is our church all show and no spiritual fruit? We have to ask ourselves that. 
Are our church leaders corrupt and feathering their own nests? And every year you see the full salary package of all the pastors and you have to look up and think, is that appropriate or is something fishy going on there? Do we do a lot of rituals of repentance but we never really change? We have to ask ourselves that. Do we treat some people better than others because of where they were born or how much money they were born with? And if we start to find that the answers to some of these questions are yes, we do that, that would be bad. So we have to roll up our sleeves. We have to pray that God will use all the means he has to remake us into a picture that does look like him so we don't become like the temple, something that gets so far off of looking like God that somebody finally has to come and hang a closed sign on it. Lord, show me how I have made the church into a picture which looks nothing like you. May we be ambassadors of your love. And this is how we become part of the new picture. And indeed, the new creation which is born on Easter Sunday. So this sermon doesn't really end now. It just goes into an invitation to say, uh, this is Holy Week. This is the most holy week of the Christian year. So come on Thursday night here to the sanctuary, a short service, 6.45 to 7.30, bring the whole family and we, we, we examine and we take part in the things Jesus said and did on his last night with his disciples in that upper room. And then come back on Friday, Good Friday, again, 6.45 to 7.30. Again, bring the whole family, unless you have little ones who are afraid of the dark, because the sanctuary is pretty dark during the Good Friday service. It's the story of Jesus' trial and his execution and his burial. It's a dark story. But it's necessary to understand the high cost of forgiveness to go through that part of the story. Holy Saturday, we don't have services, but be in your homes and be with your families and reflect on those events on that day. If you only fast one day during Lent, fast on Holy Saturday. It's the last day of the Lenten fast. And then Easter Sunday. Come in just as quick as you can. So there's 9 o'clock, there's 10.30. 9 o'clock may be better next week because of all the guests we could have. But whatever you need to do. But come and, and come in here with a sense of expectation to see the unveiling of the empty cross and the resurrection, and the, and the picture, the new picture of God, and the new creation fully expressed in Jesus, and we'll celebrate, we'll celebrate the most holy day of the Christian year on Easter Sunday together. Chris has been leading us in a uh, prayer in a, that, that is in the form of a song all during Lent, and we're going to sing that again today. So let's close that way. Let's stand together and pray in this song as we express our intention to follow only Jesus and the picture of God he brings us. Amen, amen. Let us recite the Apostles' Creed together, the essentials of our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. May you go forth in peace and be safe on your drives.